five hours to dawn and I gotta be in a goddamn glass box with the king of stink. And you know, you know, you're so fucking clean and righteous, man. You said, I, I, I got demons clawing at my ass. Streets I was selling dope, as bad as any of those homeboys. Fucking two. Welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz review podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. Merry Ozmas, everyone! I hope you're having a great Christmas if you're listening to this on December 25th. And if you're listening later on, I hope you had a lovely day. So today we're staying outside of the walls of Oz and embarking on Outside Oz number 4. Looking back over the show's second series, I think it's probably safe to say that the arrival of Chris Keller was one of the biggest moments on the show so far. So today I've decided that we're going to delve into a show starring and produced by the man behind Chris Keller, Christopher Maloney. I did contemplate covering the debut episode of Law and Order Special Victims Unit, where Maloney starred as one of the show's lead characters, Elliot Stabler, from 1999 to 2011. But there were two factors that swayed me away from doing so. It would mean going back 20 years in time, which I already do when covering Oz, and I also didn't want to cover another cop show after doing City on a Hill last time. So I had to think about it and remember that Maloney had a new show a couple of years back that I hadn't got round to watching yet, so I figured this was as good a reason as any to give it a watch. So today we're covering the debut episode of Happy, titled Saint Nick. By pure accident it ties in well with this being the Christmas special that this episode is set around Christmas time, which I didn't know when I put it on. Based on the four-issue comic of the same name, published in 2012 by Image Comics and written by Grant Morrison with illustration by Derek Robertson, Happy debuted on Sci-Fi on December 6th, 2017. Holding an 8.2 on IMDb, the episode was developed by Grant Morrison and Brian Taylor, both of whom also wrote the episode's teleplay. Grant Morrison is most famous for his comic book writing, his career starting back in 1978 when he was published in the comic magazine Near Myths by Galaxy Media. He's most famous for his work on 2000 AD, writing on titles such as Tharg's Future Shocks and Zenith as well as the Judge Dredd story arcs Inferno, Book of the Dead, and Crusade. He's also written on New X-Men for Marvel Comics, and has written extensively for DC Comics on titles such as Doom Patrol, Animal Man, and has written some of the more revered Batman stories, including Arkham Asylum, A Serious House on Serious Earth in 1989. He's also responsible for creating the characters of Damian Wayne, Batman's son in the DC comic universe, and Ellie Fimister, more commonly known as Negasonic Teenage Warhead in the X-Men. The episode was directed by Brian Taylor, who made his debut as a writer and director on 2006's Crank, co-written and directed by Mark Neveldine. The film was successful enough to produce the 2008 sequel Crank High Voltage, which both men again wrote and directed, as well as earning producer credits. I've never actually seen Crank though, as it stars Jason Statham, who is on my list of actors that I'll never watch, along with Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler. Brian Taylor and Grant Morrison also served as producers on this episode along with Christopher Maloney, as well as Neil H. Moritz, Pavun Shetty, Toby Jaffe, Patrick McManus, Thomas Saletti Jr. and Bill Butler. So with all that out of the way, let's get to it. You're not real. I'm an imaginary friend. I'm Haley's imaginary friend. Come with me. She's the sweetest little girl in the whole world. Let me out! 
and you're the only one that can help me save her. I am going to remove your penis in thin slices, like salami. That's gonna take you a long time. If you know what I mean. He knows what I mean. Are we the best team or what? Question you gotta ask yourself. Do you feel lucky? Whoops! <laughs> I pooped. Kick off with somebody spitzing blood into some ice in the urinal, which is a sentence I never thought I'd say in a million years. Also, ice in the urinal, is that a thing? Surely it would just disintegrate from piss heat. Stick with the urinal cakes in the future, those things are fucking indestructible. This is the moment we meet our hero of the show, Nick Sachs, played of course by Christopher Maloney. He's talking to himself in the mirror, and he does have a look of Doctor Who after being out on a bit of a bender. He grabs two guns from his belt, Shoots himself in the head, blood spraying everywhere, but he's having a hell of a time dancing and dabbing to a disco version of Jingle Bells with some cheerleaders. So yeah, we're about 60 seconds in, and I can tell already I'm gonna love this. It's completely off the wall, and you need that in your life sometimes. Don't get me wrong, there's great drama on TV these days, but every now and again you just need to break it up with something that's that little bit daft. That Disco Jingle Bells as well, it's credited as being by Disco Christmas, but I couldn't find the version used here anywhere, so it seems like it was made for the show by Blair Mowat. Although it turns out there are a surprising amount of Disco versions of Christmas songs when you go looking for them. Snap back to reality with Nick leaving the bathroom saying that what he's left in there is what the young kids would refer to as epic, which in itself is a big dirty timestamp on this episode. I'd never be one to claim that I'm down with the kids, but I'm quite sure that no one says Epic anymore. And this was only broadcast two years ago, it shows how quick things change. Same with a dab, but then again, anybody over the age of early teenager probably should take a long hard look at themselves if they've ever done the dab. The bartender also asks him, have you broken my porcelain again? I love the use of again, how many times has he had to replace the shitter because of Nick? And Nick also tells him to take a guess as to which end of him has ruined it. Nick takes a drink and gargles it, which creeps out a couple of patrons who leave the bar. He tells the bar owner, Terence, that he's single-handedly keeping him in business, and it was a nice touch that Nick has to have his drink served to him in a plastic cup. Clearly he isn't trusted with any glass ones. A motorcycle courier pulls up to the bar, which Nick seems very happy with, and he heads outside. He asks the biker what he has for him tonight, but the young lad just wants to drop whatever he has off to Nick and get out of there. Nick opens an envelope containing some photos and says that it's going to be a busy holiday season for both of them as the biker speeds away, leaving Nick stood out in the cold catching snowflakes on his tongue as Mike Pat and Scully Nutella plays over the opening credits, and I popped fucking huge for that. Mike Patton is probably most famous as the lead vocalist in Faith No More, joining the band in 1988, but his work outside of that band is quite different, and this is taken from his Mondo Kane album, which he put together while living in Bologna, Italy, and consists of covers of Italian pop songs from the 50s and 60s. It was performed with a 40-piece orchestra and 15-piece backing band, and it's a really good album on the whole. Very different from his work in Faith No More and his various other projects as well. I would recommend you go and check it out. Not the first time that Mike Patton has worked with Brian Taylor either, as Patton did the music for Crank High Voltage. We see a taxi cab carrying a young girl by the name of Haley who was talking to her mum Amanda, played by Bryce Lorenzo and Medina Senghor respectively. Haley is talking about different characters that she likes from her favourite show, and her mum asks her what Happy thinks. 
Haley says that Happy doesn't like them and thinks they're weirdos, which gets a laugh out of Amanda, as someone starts to talk over a microphone, and Haley says they need to hurry, otherwise they'll be late. So Happy isn't seen when mentioned, so it's quickly established that he is Haley's imaginary friend. You would know that going in if you had seen the trailer for the show, but if you're going in cold, it's set up very early on. My mum tells me that I had imaginary friends when I was a kid, but hand on heart, I have no recollection of that in the slightest. Not that there's anything wrong with that, you know, kids make up all sorts of shit when they're young, but I honestly don't recall that at all. Anyway, Haley and Amanda are off to watch the turning on of the Christmas lights, which can vary in how much you enjoy depending on where you live. Obviously, the best celebrities are reserved for the big cities, whereas where I live, they tend to go the route of having them turned on by the mayor and someone from the community. Here, though, we have Sonny Shine from The Wishies, which is Haley's favourite show, and he's singing and dancing away, but Haley is complaining that she can't see, so tries to get a better view. Sonny Shine seems to be like a perverted version of The Wiggles or Mr. Tumble or something of that nature. Amanda loses sight of Haley and starts to panic, as we see Haley climb under a chain, saying to Happy, don't worry, we'll go back, only to be confronted by a creepy-as-fuck Santa. In fact, he's credited as Very Bad Santa, and is played by Joseph D. Reitman. He tends to be more often seen in background roles, but he did have a recurring role playing the part of Jesse in the series Townies, ABC's attempt at replicating the success of Friends, only for it to be cancelled during its debut season, airing only 10 of its planned 15 episodes. Santa pulls his coat open and the camera zooms in, signifying Haley's kidnap, and everything about this was just creepy. The music, the sadistic little smile and wave that he gives her, the fact he's a grown man wearing mittens, just creepy shit all round. We meet our villains as they look over a newspaper article about Nick being let go from the police force. Yo, get a load of this snowflake, huh? Little bitch changed up his look since then, right? Easy money. No, this is not easy money. Dude, chill. Three Scaramucci's against one bum fights looking motherfucker. All right, we're gonna drop him like a hot dose. You never <laughs> seen Sax doing work. I did. What I can't figure out is why Uncle Blue would want to whack this guy. Maybe he knows too much. Whoa! <laughs> oh my god, look at you. Welcome home, little bro. Ain't no one knew you was back. Yeah, I left straight from the funeral. Hey guys, uh, moment of silence for Don Scaramucci, huh? God rest his soul. And to think, our little Michelangelo sitting right by the bedside as the great man peaced out. Mwah! Yeah. <laughs> Looks like the Force Moochie bro is gonna kick some ass tonight. So we're introduced to Mikey, and collectively these lads make up the Scaramucci brothers, and they're trying to figure out why Uncle Blue, the head of the family, is wanting to have Nick whacked. Another massive timestamp here as well, with them referring to Nick looking like someone from Bumfighters, which was a thing back in the early noughties. And that picture of Nick on the front of the paper looks like it could have been just lifted from the set of Law & Order SVU, almost like it's a production still. Also got somewhat of a Godfather vibe here, with young Michael returning home, although, unlike Michael Corleone, Mikey looks like he's already a willing participant in mob activity. Florian, played by Sam Wolf and looking like one of those dickheads from Jersey Shore, asks Mikey to take a look at the job they've just got, but Mikey says that he has business for Uncle Blue, which came straight from the Don before he passed away, and that it can't wait. Florian tells him fuck that and that they need some ballistic therapy first, and then he can go and pledge allegiance to the new Don who he refers to as Uncle Freaky, but is quickly told to shut up by his brother Pal, played by Joe Perrion, who tells him to watch his mouth and calls him a dumbass. Cut to a man dressed in a prawn suit made of latex, smoking a cigarette that is resting in a hammer getting a blowjob from a prostitute, 
and to echo an upcoming line, that's something that you don't see every day, and is probably the understatement of the year. Clearly the showmakers set out to just have a ton of fun when making this, and pitching this in a writer's room must have been a hell of an experience. I also like that this prostitute is telling the guy to hurry up and come because she has her 11 o'clock coming, no pun intended. The idea that she takes advanced bookings is fantastic. Prawn Man, and that's how he is credited, goes to whack her in the head with a hammer, but Nick arrives, and much like me a moment ago says that this isn't something you see every day. Prawn Man throws the hammer at Nick, but it lands in the door frame, allowing for Nick to shoot him, and I laugh so much at Prawn Man hitting the floor and the <coughs> noise that his suit made. Great stuff. Prawn Man is, or was, played by Glenn Ween, and I would love to know who is in charge of his IMDb page. His resume isn't particularly inspiring, with small roles such as Movie Lover, Shlomo Cockstein, and Young Male Usher, but the picture used for his bio, the one that they figured would be the best way to advertise his face to prospective casting directors and such, is a photo of him as Prawn Man getting his blowjob. And when I say photo, I literally mean a photo of the TV screen showing this scene. It's fucking horrific. You're in this show. Surely you could have got the okay to use a screenshot. Nick says that he's the prostitute's 11 o'clock and pulls up a chair. He apologises for being early, but if he'd shown up on time, she'd be dead now, which is a fair point to make, really. She recognises him and says that Nick busted her previously, but that he was a gentleman when doing so and even gave her advice of going home and getting her act together, and that he inspired her. Nick gives her a sarcastic, I can see that, but she gives as good as she gets, saying that he doesn't look like much of a cop anymore. Nick says that he doesn't want to have that conversation right now, and that he's more interested in how she's going to pay him back. Cut to Mikey and Pal walking through the city, with Pal saying that he's noticed a change in Mikey, even saying, I know you, this isn't Disco Mikey, and mentions that he's seen his Snapchat from wherever Mikey had been. Snapchat is one of the more confusing of the social media platforms to me. I just don't get it. It just seems to be people putting dog noses on the photos. Which might make me sound like an old man yelling at a cloud, but it's probably safe to say there won't be an Inside Oz account on Snapchat anytime soon. It's still not as weird as TikTok or the people that use that though, and similar to what I was saying about the dab. If you're over the age of 12 and use TikTok, then you need to have a serious think about where you've gone wrong. We get some crash cuts of Mikey's time away, and it doesn't seem to be all that enjoyable as we see a woman covered in blood, and the Don on his deathbed whispering in Mikey's ear. He mentions that the guys might think that the outgoing Don lined him up with a big inheritance before dying, and says that the Don left him something, but it wasn't money. They meet back up with the other brothers and say that they're going to catch Nick literally with his pants down, and points to Pal for using literally in its proper context. We, however, fade to a different scene of the creepy Santa working away in his workshop, listening to Santa Claus That's Me by Vernon Dalhart. Some great music used in this episode, like with the use of Mike Patton earlier on, and there's a right banger coming up later on too. He's stored Haley away in a wooden crate, a la Raiders of the Lost Ark, and he's drilling some air holes so that she at least doesn't die straight away. We get a POV of someone, or something, hiding from Sansa, and they nearly get caught before managing to escape, and we hear them shout back, Don't worry, Haley, I'll find him. Back with the Scaramucci's, and they're making their way up the stairs, guns in hand. They burst into the room and see a man sat in the chair, and they unload more bullets than those handguns could possibly hold into the man's back. Pal shouts that Nick isn't so tough now when his phone starts to ring. It's nothing, right? Not a fucking tough guy anymore, Sax! 
this? Pal, swipe, Scaramooch. No, you ain't. That's me. Oh, boy. Let me tell me you were the smart one. Hide that genius. See if you can follow this. Right now, you're talking to the man who was hired to kill the Scaramucci brothers. Now, full confession, I am one lazy bastard, so the problem is... How do I get all you squirrely assholes together in one place? Solution? I call it a hit on that handsome son of a bitch, Nick Sachs. Oh, shit. I gather you all together in one place, lined up. Like a turkey shoot. <laughs> That mobile phone ringtone used there was also used in the movie Crank, which, as I mentioned earlier, Brian Taylor was one of the directors for. Nick says that he only contracted the kill for three people, and says that the one left standing must be baby Mikey, and that it's awkward that he's just killed his brothers. Mikey shoots Nick in the shoulder before trying to shoot him again, but his gun just clicks as it's out of ammo. Nick tells him to say bye-bye, but Mikey begs him not to shoot, and that whatever Nick is getting paid, he has something worth a hell of a lot more. He tells Nick that he has a password from the old Don, and that it's for an encrypted file to a list of names, and describes it as being priceless. Nick, however, says that he doesn't do priceless, and that he's more of a cash-and-carry kind of guy, and that he'll likely be tortured for the information by other people, so he might as well give him arse cancer. Mikey continues to beg for mercy, as Nick says that seeing as Mikey is in a sharing kind of mood, he can share it with his brothers, and shoots Mikey in the stomach, propelling him through the window, down to the street below. There's a great delay in hearing Mikey hit the street, in fact he lands on a car, and the prostitute mentions about Nick being shot, but he's more bothered about the heart attack he's just had, and says that he should join a spin class and eat more kale. He looks down to the street and sees that Mikey is starting to move. He heads downstairs to Mikey and starts to rummage through his pockets, as Mikey says, forgive me mama. Nick tells him that if he reminds him of his mama, then Mikey has bigger problems than the hole in his gut, as Mikey asks about being able to tell a confession which Nick seems happy enough to listen to, even if he has to pretend to be Mikey's mum. Mikey says that the world is run by devils disguised as people, but Nick, who finds a money clip in Mikey's coat, tells him that he's not interested and holds his gun to Mikey's throat and is prepared to shoot. However, Mikey passes away before he can, as Nick quips that that was easy. Nick gets back to his feet, telling himself that he is fine as he takes a swig from his hip flask, before falling to his knees, seemingly having another heart attack, as we hear another track from Mike Patton's Mondo Kane, Il Cielo in Una Stanza, to close out Act 1. Mama, please, I've been as good as I can. Forgive me, Mom. Yeah, if I remind you of your mama, you got bigger problems than a hole in your If you just hear my confession, I can move on, Mom. Confession? Yeah, sure. Go ahead, knock yourself Mama, the world, it's run by devils. They, they look like people, but they're devils. Great grandpas. He showed me things, things I wish I never saw. I gotta talk to you, Mama, so that I won't have it in me anymore, and that I can be free. All right, I already told you once, pal. Not one day again. I'm not interested. That was easy. Act 2 then, and it starts off with two cops arriving at the scene, and they reckon that Nick looks like he's dead, and that if he is, that means less paperwork for them. They give Nick a swift kick, which jolts him back to life, and they pull their guns and tell him not to move, as backup arrives in the form of Detective Meredith McCarthy, 
played by Lily Mirojnik, which like with other names I've probably butchered the pronunciation of completely. Lily's first acting credit came in the 2005 movie Domino, playing the part of Sorority Girl number 2, and in 2008 appeared as Lee in the Matt Reeves-directed Cloverfield. She's also had a number of small roles on TV, including parts in CSI, Blue Bloods, and Grey's Anatomy, while her first recurring roles came in the short-lived TNT drama Public Morals, in which she appeared in three episodes, as well as appearing in Elementary on CBS. Happy, however, became her first real recurring role, appearing in every episode of the show, but I'll talk more about that at the end of the podcast. So Meredith arrives asking what's going on, and tells the officers to stand down. She checks Nick over by checking for breathing, and then asks what happened to Mikey. She asks if there were any witnesses, the only one being the prostitute who she then interviews. Prostitute mentions about Mikey whispering some kind of password to Nick, but then asks if she can get out of there, as she has everything that can come out of a guy on her, which is a grim way of putting it. I am also very aware that I just keep referring to her as prostitute, but we don't actually find out her name in this episode. We might find out her name later on down the line, but then again, maybe we won't. Nick gets loaded into an ambulance as Meredith leaves the building, telling the paramedics to keep him alive. One of them explains that Nick has been shot and has had two heart attacks and most likely won't make it. But Meredith seems quite certain that he will, saying that he always does. Fade back to the POV shot who is flying through the air, saying that he's going to struggle to find him, but that he has to as we swoop down into the city. He asks a person for help, but realises that they can't see him, before speeding off passing a couple fucking in a car, an in-progress mugging, as well as seeing the biker courier from earlier on. Eventually, the ambulance transporting Nick passes by, and we go inside where he's flatlining. The paramedics scramble to keep him alive, one of them prepping a shot of adrenaline, but Nick springs back into action and the medic ends up taking the shot himself in the neck, which sends him into somewhat of a happy state. Adrenaline, or to give it its scientific name, epinephrine, is a chemical that narrows the airway to the lungs and also narrows blood vessels. Normally it's injected into the thigh muscle, which, if you know anybody who has diabetes, does so using an EpiPen. But TV and movies have taken this and made it into a trope in which people take adrenaline shots straight into the heart, much like the famous scene in Pulp Fiction. This can be done in real life, however it can cause a reduction of blood flow to other organs, so it could potentially do more harm than good. That doesn't seem to affect our medic though, as he is having a whale of a time, and Nick instructs the other to get him 20mg of morphine. Unlike adrenaline, morphine sulfate is a strong painkiller, and acts by blocking pain signals to the brain. Common side effects with morphine include sleepiness, sickness and constipation, and it's also not recommended to consume alcohol as this will increase drowsiness, which will no doubt do wonders for Nick from what we've seen so far. Nick drops back into unconsciousness before waking up and we finally meet the thing that's been looking for him. Hey, mister! Come on, snap out of it! (laughs) You can see me! Yeah, you ain't quite what I expected either. I guess we get what we get, and we don't get upset, right? Oh boy. Well, here goes nothing. I'm happy! The happy horse, horse, horse so full of fun, of course, of course! It's plain to see, it's fun to be happy! (laughs) The happy horse, horse, horse so full of love, of course, of course! It's time to be carefree, so come with me, happy! Here it comes! Here comes the fun! Are you ready? Ready? Here it comes! 
clippity clop, clippity clop. We got no time to mope and mop. Let's ride the magic rainbow right to dippy 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 stop. So happy, a horse unicorn type thing is voiced by US comedian Patton Oswald. However, he wasn't involved when the show was piloted. At that time, the voice of Happy was provided by Saturday Night Live regular Bobby Monaghan, who has an extensive resume when it comes to voice acting. Looking at his credits, there doesn't seem to be much that would have prevented him from providing the voice of Happy, so I can only assume that it was a creative decision to replace him, Patton Oswald having that little bit more name recognition to casual viewers. Or it could just simply be a case of Monaghan didn't sign on to do the series at all, and perhaps just did the pilot as a favour to someone at the time. Also, in researching for this, I didn't realise how many credits Patton Oswald actually had. It's a bit of a weird one. I've always known that he was a stand-up comic, but I've never seen any of his act outside of one routine about the MTV show I Want a Famous Face, which, if you can find it, is very funny. I can't remember exactly which show it's from, but I'm sure you'll be able to find it somewhere. Starting in stand-up in the late 1980s, Patton also wrote for Mad TV in the mid-90s before making his TV debut in 1994 in an episode of Seinfeld in the show's fifth season, and in 1996 made his film debut in Down Periscope, a very underrated comedy starring Kelsey Grammer. His big break came in 1998 when he landed the role of Spence Olchin in the CBS sitcom King of Queens, appearing in 179 episodes between 1998 and 2007. Also in 2007, Patton earned his first starring role, providing the voice for Remy in Disney Pixar's Ratatouille. Since then, Patton has had regular work on TV with his own stand-up comedy specials, as well as being the narrator on ABC's The Goldbergs, and also appeared in eight episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. In film, he replaced Louis C.K. in the role of Max in Illumination's The Secret Life of Pets 2, after Louis C.K. was removed from the project in November 2017, and I'll let you go and Google the reason for that happening. I'm also going to go on record and say that this CGI on Happy is a bit dodgy. I don't know if it's a budget thing, or if whatever software the show used doesn't lend itself well to HD, but there's just something about Happy that looks off. It's really obvious that Happy has been added in afterwards, and I know that sounds daft because obviously he has, he's a flying blue unicorn for god's sake. But CGI effects when done well should be able to make something look like it's actually part of the scene. If anything, happy CGI looks almost too polished, especially when presented in a grimy-looking New York City. Take something like Jurassic Park, for example. Now, obviously that was a major motion picture with a much larger budget. I think it was something like $60 million, which obviously Happy and Sci-Fi Channel doesn't have. But the CGI technology used was still relatively new back then. Yet 25-plus years later, a lot of those effects from 1993 still look amazing. Which, considering the advancements of the technology in both film and TV since then, it's a bit of a mindfuck how Happy can look so blatantly fake. Obviously, there's suspension of belief required for a show like this, and he's a bit cartoony as opposed to photorealistic. But Happy looking so unreal shouldn't be the first thing that you notice. There's also some very dodgy looking green screen effects in the preceding scene in the ambulance where the back door was open and you can clearly tell that Chris Maloney has been added into the shot afterwards to make it look like he was in the ambulance. Perhaps they were shooting in a real ambulance rather than a set and it was a space issue. Or maybe it was just a budget thing, but once you see it, it's really hard to not notice it. So Nick gets given some more pills from the medics and once again falls unconscious as we cut to Meredith on the phone with Francisco Scaramucci or Uncle Blue as he's been referred to so far, played by Richie Costa. 
For some reason, I recognise his name, but looking at his credits, I've no idea why. He was in the second season of True Detective, which I didn't actually watch. And the only other thing that sticks out is The Dark Knight, where he's credited as a Chechen. And I can't imagine that to have been a memorable performance, so I've no idea why I know his name. Meredith tells him about Mikey being killed and that Nick knows about the password. But she promises to have a chat with Nick once he wakes up at the hospital. But Uncle Blue tells her that if Nick dies, then he won't be venturing his anger on Meredith, but rather he'll do it on her mother. We also see in this scene, and seems to have a touch of the Alzheimer's, as she's saying that her husband is on TV, which isn't even turned on. Uncle Blue hangs up the phone and makes another call, all the while threatening to burn his son's dog if he doesn't pay attention to it, and says that that will be the fourth dog in a year that they'll have gone through. The juxtaposition of him being completely threatening, yet also in the most garish of Christmas jumpers, was really well done. And Richie Costa was really good in this scene, so he's already been more memorable this time around. He calls Smoothie, who seems to be an associate of his, wishing him happy holidays, and we get a quick shot of Smoothie in some sort of operating theatre, and we'll see more of that later on. Cut to the police station where Amanda is filing a missing persons report on Haley, but she seems to be having a bit of difficulty doing so as the officer is more focused on getting the right kind of pink for her backpack description. She hands him a card with Haley's fingerprints, saying that she had her printed a couple of years back, and asks to see Captain Rollins, but is told to go home, and is given the card of someone to talk to in the morning, that being Constance Sutherland, a grief and loss counsellor. The officer assures her that they are on the case, but there's no way a person could just go home and sleep off a child going missing. I really did feel for Amanda in this scene, and it's probably the most down-to-earth scene in the episode. I don't think we actually see Captain Rollins at any point on the show, but it would have been a fun little easter egg if they could have got Henry Rollins in to play him. Who, by the way, if they were ever to make a film of his life, Chris Maloney should definitely play him. They're only a couple of months apart in age and both were born in Washington DC. It's a no-brainer. Anyway, that's enough of my fantasy casting session as we go to the hospital, where Nick is coming round only to find Meredith waiting to speak to him. He asks her to open a window, but doing so lets Happy in, who complains about the cold. Nick says, I'm pretty sure I told you the fuck off with Meredith answering, yeah, you did a few times. Basic stuff, but really well done. He motions over to the TV, where Happy flew over to, but she tells him that it's off. So it's now established that Nick is the only person that can see Happy. He asks her what she wants, and she starts to give out about how it's hard to believe that Nick used to be the best detective on the force. Nick jokes about being a hero, to which Meredith tells him, you were mine, and says that his wife was smart to get out when she did, which is really fucking harsh and Happy appears from out of nowhere and calls her a good time Pam. I tried looking that up, it doesn't seem to be a reference to anything in particular. Nick throws a cup at Happy, but of course it looks to Meredith like he was throwing it at her. Nick asks why didn't she just leave him out on the street, and she tells him why he thinks he's here, referring to that particular hospital, which turns out is a mob hospital, tying back to Meredith talking to Uncle Blue earlier. We don't find out the connection between Meredith and Uncle Blue in this episode, but I'm intrigued to find out the reason behind it. She says that Nick is in deep shit because he knows about the password, and that Nick knows what they'll do to get it out of him unless he tells her first. Happy has a guess at the password being open sesame, and Nick takes a swipe at him. It's actually quite well done this scene, with Maloney having to act with two different characters, one of which isn't even there. It's a great job by him. Meredith says that there is an underworld civil war brewing, and that Uncle Blue probably had his nephews killed, and that Mikey got caught up in it by mistake. She says that maybe Nick has done the same, but she can still get him out of trouble if he tells her what he knows. He calls her a pain in the ass, but says that she deserves better, and tells her to get out of there. 
Meredith leaves and we see two cops waiting outside the door, which spooks Nick, and he starts to get out of bed, saying that he's hallucinating from the oxycodone, which is another painkiller similar to morphine. He stumbles around his room and finds a bloodstained mattress, and then leaves his room with Happy in tow. He sits down in the hallway and goes through a coping mechanism where he covers his eyes and counts down from five. He uncovers his eyes, but Happy is still there, telling him that this is no time for hide and seek. Big laugh out of me for that one. Nick says that Happy is imaginary, which Happy acknowledges, and tells him about how he has an imagination which is limited, and usually involves inflicting pain in ways which may not have occurred to most. Happy tells him that he isn't Nick's imaginary friend, he's Haley's, and tells Nick that she's in trouble, and that Nick is the only one who can save her. I honestly thought, and if I don't put a spoiler alert here, someone will complain, that we were going to get the reveal of Haley being Nick's daughter here, but it doesn't come. It's blindingly obvious that that is where things are heading, but they decided to put it in a different part of the episode. Meredith heads to a lift, or an elevator as some parts of the world insist on calling it, and Smoothie and his group of Doctor Goons pass her, and Meredith knows what's coming as they head to Nick's room, and we close out Act 2. No exit this way, Nick! Jesus, that was a bad one. Damn pills are gonna kill me. We got company, Nick. And he's back. Some real creepazoids. Hey, if you want to be useful, why don't you tell me how many I'm dealing with? Okay, it's one, two, three, four, uh, five. Are you sure about that? Uh-huh. So five. I've done five. I can do five. Come, here they come, here they come. Uh-oh. Act 3 then, and in what I imagine will become a running thing throughout the show, Nick is waking up from his latest bout of unconsciousness, and he's strapped to an operating table which has been placed vertical, and he meets Smoothie. He grabs a syringe from the table and tells his hired goons to hold Nick's eye open, and he pours some liquid in there reminiscent of Alex in Clockwork Orange. Nick sees Happy and tells him that he wasn't any help, but Happy says that he can't be if Nick keeps fainting, and they start to argue before Smoothie slaps Nick across the face. He says that drug-induced dementia is a luxury that Nick no longer gets to enjoy, and that he needs his complete focus. Smoothie here is played by Patrick Fischler, another member of the cast with an extensive career in bit parts on TV, but he's probably best known for his appearances in Lost for ABC, and in Mad Men on AMC. Mad Men is one of those shows that I watched all the way up to the final series, and for some reason I've yet to watch how it ends, and amazingly I've somehow managed to stay spoiler-free from that too which considering that the show ended four years ago must be some sort of record. He's also popped up in a couple of David Lynch projects, playing the part of Dan in media student favourite Mulholland Drive, as well as appearing in the 2017 reboot of Twin Peaks. Nick comes to his senses and realises that this is Smoothie, although he seems surprised to see him, indicating that this might be the first time they've met, as Smoothie mentions about his reputation preceding him. Nick quips that he's heard that Smoothie likes to get peed on, and one of the goons sniggers, which was really funny. Smoothie stabs some sort of medical instrument into Nick's leg to get him to stop talking, but Nick tells him, let's get this over with, and then starts to tell them about Mikey dying in his arms. So this substance that got poured into his eye earlier must be some form of sodium theopental, often referred to as truth serum. It doesn't seem to be working, however, as Nick brings Smoothie in close as if he's going to tell him the password, instead telling him that Mikey said, tinkle tinkle. Obviously the mentioning of Smoothie's pee fetish is off-limits, 
and he jabs the instrument into Nick's leg a bit more. He says that he'll get the words out of Nick, but he's going to take his time and that he is a professional, whereas Nick sees every new job as a chance to fulfil a death wish. Like all good professionals, Smoothie has music while he works, and they put on the stereo playing New Order's Blue Monday, the banger of a tune that I alluded to earlier. Smoothie grabs a circular saw and says that he's going to cut Nick's penis off like a salami in very thin slices, Nick telling him that it'll take a long time. I know we've not got to one of Chris Maloney's full frontal scenes in Oz yet, but yeah, if memory serves me correctly, we could be here a while if that is indeed Smoothie's plan. Oh, I don't think I can watch. Come on, Nick, do something! Well, you know, after a while it just gets harder and harder to find a reason to keep on going. There's two kinds of people in this godforsaken world, you worthless little maggot! Which kind do you want to be? A good apple or a rolled apple? Oops! I poop. Oh, for Christ's sakes. Seeing as happy is only good for shitting imaginary apples, Nick takes charge and angles the saw towards Smoothie, spraying blood in his eyes, and then grabs it from him and cuts at the neck of one of the other goons. He fights off the other goons in equally ultra-violent fashion, trapping one of them underneath the reclining bed, which has a great payoff later on, and throws one through a glass window. The one that got the saw to the neck doesn't seem to want to die, however, much to Nick's annoyance, so he grabs a fire extinguisher and cracks the goon in the face. Smoothie gives him a creepy wave from across the room, seemingly getting off on the violence. So Nick hammers the extinguisher down on the goon's face two more times, and then mimics coming on the goon's face with the contents of the extinguisher. Happy looks horrified, and even I felt a little dirty afterwards. Similar to the time I saw Ramstein until Lindemann went riding across the stage on a foam shooting cock. It is a brutal scene, but considering what's already gone before it, it's not shockingly violent as it's completely unrealistic which is exactly the turn the show was going for. I haven't read the comic on which the show is based, but I imagine that it also has this over-the-top violence which they've tried to mimic here on the show. The two cops from earlier burst into the room, and we get the payoff of the reclining bed crushing the goon's head, while Nick, calm as anything, says that he can explain. We get the confirmation that these cops are on the take, as one of them says that Blue wants Nick alive, as Nick tells Smoothie that they'll tango later then proceeds to make short work of the two cops and makes a run for it from some other police officers, and he even manages to evade them on the stairs using the Martin McFly trick from Back to the Future 2. Nick proceeds to leave the hospital in a very indiscreet manner, but more police turn up and he's on the run again, and even backpedals while using a man in a wheelchair as a shield, which, again, big pop for that. Doing that also means we see a bit of Maloney's ass, but as we've all seen Oz before, that's nothing new and he has to devise a new escape plan, which he does by pulling open a lift shaft, or an elevator shaft as some of the world insist on calling it, and plans to make a jump for it. Happy tells him that they can't save Haley if Nick is dead, but Nick says to hell with her, and to hell with Happy, who starts to cry, which was quite sad actually. He asks how Happy knew there were five people coming for him if Happy is just part of his imagination, but the cops come shooting, so Nick has to grab Happy, and down the shaft they go. Nick gets outside as the shootout continues, goes arse over tit on the ice, but turns to see that Meredith is still there and asks if he can borrow her car, which she reluctantly does. Nick speeds through the city as we finally get the reveal that's been massively obvious all episode, as the car gets hit by an oncoming truck, and the episode closes with Haley calling out to Happy from her crate as the credits roll. Where are we going, Nick, huh? Where are we going, huh? We, we ain't going nowhere. You heard that nice lady back there. 
I signed my own death warrant when I asked this gun, Mike. Every scumbag in the city will be looking for me if they're not already. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah but... but... Yeah, but nothing. I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. Quit your tap dancing. You're ruining the dashboard. I didn't want to tell you, Nick. So then don't. I was afraid of scaring you away. After all, you left her once before. Maybe you just don't want to be a daddy. <sighs> what are you yammering on about? Why do you think I picked you, Nick? I don't know. Lucky, I guess. <laughs> Say that again. Nick, Haley is your daughter. So there you go, Series 1, Episode 1 of Happy, starring Christopher Maloney. Much like with City on a Hill last time around, I really enjoyed this. With the episode clocking in at just under 44 minutes, it was a nice easy watch, and very different in tone from a lot of stuff that I've watched in recent years. Chris Maloney is on fine form as always when he gets to flex his comedic muscle, and the overall comic book aesthetic lent itself well to the show. I watched this on UK Netflix, and it has a 15 age rating which was quite surprising as it is very violent in places and shows how different violence is perceived on TV in 2019, especially with what we've seen in Oz. The violence is quite graphic, but at the same time, it's not crucifying a paedophile to the floor graphic. It's over-the-top, comedic violence rather than brutal, teach-someone-a-lesson violence. It certainly did the job with making me want to watch more of the show, however, which I am going to do, mainly because I want to see what wacky oddball stuff they come up with for Nick Sachs going forward. And I am interested in finding out how he's ended up in the situation he's in, as well as the relationship between Uncle Blue and Meredith. As for how the show fared with critics, reviews were generally favourable, although it was clear that the show wouldn't be to everyone's taste, and viewing figures for the first series started strong. This episode on debut drew just over 1.8 million viewers once you've factored in DVR and all that stuff, finishing with a 0.4 rating overall. The rest of the series did drop slightly, with the series finale drawing a little over 1.2 million viewers for a 0.2 rating. But that's not uncommon for a new show as people tend to tune in for early episodes out of curiosity. On January 29th, 2018, the week before the first series finale aired, Sci-Fi announced that they had renewed the show for a second series of 10 episodes, up from Series 1's 8 episodes, the first of which debuted on March 27th, 2019. However, ratings were down from that of the show's first series, with the opening episode of Series 2 drawing less than 900,000 overall viewers, ending with a 0.1 rating. This trend continued throughout the course of the second series, with the final episode, which aired on March 29th, 2019, drawing only 610,000 viewers, again for a 0.1 rating, meaning that the show had lost two-thirds of its audience since debuting. Despite being generally well-received by critics and a social media campaign from its online fanbase, Sci-Fi cancelled the show on June 4th, 2019. Fans of the show remain hopeful for a third series being produced by one of the streaming services picking the show up, but at the time of the recording, nothing seems to be forthcoming. So as it stands, Happy remains cancelled after a two-series run. It's not all bad news for Brian Taylor and Grant Morrison, however, as they're currently working on a TV adaptation of Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, set to hit screens in 2020. While Christopher Maloney becomes the second Oz alumni, following in the footsteps of J.K. Simmons, to play the part of James Gordon in the Harley Quinn animated series, currently being shown on DC Universe. Both series of Happy are available in the UK on Netflix, where it's listed as a Netflix original, but don't let that put you off. And the first series is also available through Amazon Prime Video, as well as on DVD and Blu-ray. 
and in the US you can watch the show on sci-fi.com until May 2020. Like I say, I enjoyed this overall and do intend to watch the rest of the show, but it's a shame to see another show get cancelled so early in its run. I do also intend to read the original comic book, I'm not calling it a graphic novel because that's a term used by knobheads, to see how or if it differs from the show. As I mentioned at the beginning, it was only a short four-issue run, and you should be able to pick it up from your local comic shop as a collected edition with relative ease. I'm going to give this episode an 8 out of 10. It was completely off the wall and batshit crazy at times, but I had a lot of fun watching it. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to iTunes or Apple Podcasts as it's now known, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Overcast, Castbox, or wherever you get your podcast from. The entire Series 1 and Series 2 of Inside Oz are available there, as well as the previous Outside Oz bonus episodes. Help the show out by leaving a 5-star review wherever you can and help with the exposure for the show, and make sure to like and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. If you want to get in touch with the show with any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can do so by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, and you can follow the show on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. Head on over to the Oz subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash ozshow where I post about a number of different topics on the show and you'll also find all the links to where you can find the podcast. I will be back in 2020 with Series 3 of Inside Oz, which I'm really looking forward to covering. Some massive developments happen in that series which I can't wait to talk about. But until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I hope you have a Merry Christmas, a Happy Hanukkah, Quasi Kwanzaa, a Tip Top Tet, and a Solemn Dignified Ramadan. See you in 2020, everyone. Take care.